for one of the most beautiful and playable custom acoustics on the planet, look no further than Ed Rice at Toeir Guitars. Ed is a true artist, transforming exotic woods into magnificent, sweet-sounding instruments. Go to toeirguitars.us, that's T-O-I-R-G-U-I-T-A-R-S.us, and contact Ed today. Hey everybody, Brad and I want to say thank you for listening and thank you for the support. Please continue to listen and share this podcast on all platforms that you can. And if you'd like to support us monthly, we're set up now where you can go to anchor.fm slash Top Hill Recording. Hit the support button, 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99 per month. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. Top Hill Recording Podcast, episode 48. What's up, Neil? What's up, man? Wrap up for the season three, huh? That's hard to believe, man. Episode 48. That's pretty crazy. Last episode of season three, we have Steve Morgan with us tonight, one of your former bandmates. So Woo! welcome, Steve. Hey, hey. Welcome, buddy. Thanks for coming Thanks on, man. Thanks for having me. Voodoo dude, right? Yeah, we almost got a... We're running voodoo through here, man. I think by the end of the month, we might have everybody on. Yeah. <laughs> I heard you got together not too long ago and had a little jam session. Yeah, yeah, man. It was amazing. Uh, Chris, Floyd, and then Steve came up and, um, dude, we had a... Yeah, man. That was a great time. Just a few... That was a great time, dude. Playing a bunch of those old tunes, I mean, that we hadn't played in, you know, 20 years or close to. The thing that blew me away was how easy it was. I know, right? <laughs> it was awesome. We just picked right up. Yeah. It was like it was all still under the fingers, you know. We just had to, you know, I had to knock a cobweb or two loose. But <laughs> so you guys we went back and played we just, songs you were playing in the early 90s, and you remember those? Late 90s, man. <laughs> oh, was it? Late 90s? Okay. Yeah. Don't well, age still, us too much, brother. that's a long brother. time ago. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, man, we, we knocked it off. We, we, uh... We played a, a couple old original original songs and a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little jam, did some new stuff. I mean, we just had a good time. I'm just thinking about the bands mm -hmm. I play in, man. If we miss a, a rehearsal or two, we get back together and we're like, what key do we play that with? <laughs> All right, we're going to have a new bourbon. I know we haven't had this one, Neil. Yeah. So this is, I don't even know if I'm saying this right, but it looks like Jephtha Creed. Sounds right to me. Steve, does is, that sound good, Jephtha? Jep, Jephtha, Jephtha Creed. That's the one, uh, that's that distillery that's off the interstate, isn't it? Yeah, Shelbyville. Uh, yep. Yeah. Right yeah. around the I've corner. i curious to try that. Ooh. So I just got, I've never had it, just got it yesterday. Went to Liquor Barn and, and picked it up. It's uh, four grain straight bourbon whiskey. Um, aged at least two years. I don't know scary. if that's good. That's scary as hell, man. <laughs> <laughs> But it says it's made with, where is this? I saw this. Bloody butcher corn. I guess this is, is some type of corn that their farm is famous for. And uh, It's called bloody butcher corn? Bloody butcher corn, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I don't know, man. Maybe I don't want it. <laughs> Let's see how it tastes. 
All right, Steve, we're going to give you the heads up on uh, Jephthah Creed here. Yeah, okay. Let you know if it's any good. Jephthah yeah, Creed, yeah, yeah. four grain. It's got a two-year smell to it. Not bad. Not bad. That's not bad. No, it's not. Interesting. Yeah, a little spice to it. Yeah. You can tell it's a young bourbon, but yeah, it's not bad. Not bad. All right. Uh, Did you go stock up at the liquor barn, man? No, I just picked this up. I did pick up some bourbon. Ooh. Um, but I'm 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 drinking four O's a single barrel. Oh, oh that's and, good uh, now. Oh yeah, I love it. And uh I've actually uh, this is I'm coming coming to the end of this bottle and I've got a backup of makers over there. So <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Depending on how far we get, I'm I'll have to crack that one open, but Otherwise, the single barrels doing me right. <laughs> oh man, I almost bought some of that today, but they were out. They had the regular four roses. I, I was like, I can't do just. I need that single barrel. It's not there. So yeah, I haven't had four roses in a while. I've kind of made. I think I told you before. I've kind of made the one hundred proof old forester in my house bourbon. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Do you make a lot of cocktails, or do you just drink it on the rocks? Uh, drink or? it neat. He's a true Kentucky gentleman, Steve. He drinks it neat <laughs> in his little glass. A little splash of water, maybe, right? <laughs> I don't know. He stays away from water, too. <laughs> if you, we're, we, it usually is a setup of a bourbon and then a, a carbonated water next to it that eventually gets sipped on. But <laughs> We've got a, uh, you know, bourbon's kind of a, just a little side interest on this music podcast, but we are going to open up season four with our first full bourbon episode yeah so that'll be fun and interesting nice yeah it's gonna be insane man we got a it's a new bourbon let's not say what it is though don't talk about it no yeah we got a new bourbon the whole i mean i guess past present future presentation coming to us <laughs> yeah gonna... yeah we're gonna learn all about the company how it got started and we're also going to taste some of the bourbons they started with some yeah. they have now, and then I think he's even going to bring some that haven't hit the market yeah. yet, which is cool. Well, Steve, I I told Kim, I said, you may need to pick me up Tuesday. I know it's only three houses down, but you might have to pick me up and come get me after Tuesday's <laughs> podcast. Hey, you got it, dude. Just shoot me a text. <laughs> you walk home. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't riding a bike. <laughs> All right, Steve, so why don't you start this podcast? Why don't you go back and talk about your earliest memories of music back in childhood, uh, what, what you remember about that, and at what point maybe you realized music was going to be an important part of your life? Well, music, uh, we grew up in a house filled with music, and my brother, I have a twin brother, I had a twin brother, Kyle, and uh, he played in the band with Neil and uh, and me, and Kyle and I grew up in our, we had an older sister and she was 12 and a half years older nice. than us when we were born. So about the time we were hitting that three, four, five year old range where we were kind of becoming aware of the world, our sister was in high school. And so she's listening to her records of her, you know, Michael Jackson and Prince and Double Dutch Bus and all this kind of like <laughs> 80s uh, pop music. Yeah. And so... I think that her tastes early on, just by the fact that it was filling our house, you know, as she was, you know, as we were all growing up, I think a lot of my musical taste and, and Kyle's <clears throat> was shaped uh, by my sister. And 
in terms of the rest of the family, my grandmother was the church pianist. She had a piano in her living room. Occasionally, she'd try to sit us down and teach us something on it. Um, you know, we were honorary kids. I mean, we didn't pay much attention, but uh, <laughs> the piano was always there. My sister ended up uh, playing church piano after uh, after my grandmother passed. And actually, Kyle did some piano playing, too, in church. But, you know, music was, you know, it was all around. And um, we grew up in the southeastern Kentucky, which... You know, we didn't have MTV and we didn't have a lot of, you know, places to go to hear new music. And so we, I think there was one top 40 radio station and a lot of our exposure to music growing up was very limited in terms of, you know, in terms of very few channels that we could, you know, to get uh, fresh music, so to speak. So, you know, about the time um, we were in fifth grade, we... Uh, moved to Richmond, Kentucky, which had MTV. And we were <laughs> eight or nine years old or 10 years old. And we joined the school band and Kyle played trumpet and I played percussion. And we, you know, kind of started doing that side of things. And then we, um, you know, we're in a more, I won't say metropolitan. I mean, Richmond is not a big city, but it's certainly bigger than, you know, where we came from. But we got kind of a, a broader exposure to different kinds of music. We were right on campus at UK and this is the late 80s and you've got REM happening and you've got the B-52s happening and you hear all that stuff on campus, you know, when you're walking through or whatever. So, you know, there's a lot of, uh, it kind of opened up a lot um, for us on that side of things. But I think Kyle, my brother, started really getting into Billy Joel. He was a piano player and he really started getting into Billy Joel around the time we were 10 or 11, 12 years old. And all of a sudden, my grandmother's piano that sat there mostly neglected in the living room became his spot. And he would sit there and he'd learn these Billy Joel tunes. Hmm. And so, um, you know, he, he just started playing, you know, playing piano, playing pop songs that everybody recognized. And, hey, Kyle, play a song. He was figuring it all out by ear. And Neil knows. Hmm. I mean, Kyle's, uh, he was a tremendous talent. And yeah. um, his ear was always very strong, but he could, you know, he'd peck out full chord voicings and, you know, play the stuff and just, he'd sit there until he got it right. Mm -hmm. he, he was driven and it was like he, you know, he could not do it. So when y'all growing up and before you moved to Richmond and you mentioned the, you know, the one top 40 station, what was the, was it mostly like country or older music, you know, uh, that, that you were growing up to. And when you made that move to Richmond and, heard the REMs and the B-52s and other things that kind of expanded the horizon of music for you. What type of mind-blowing situation was that? Because, I mean, when I think of the late 80s, early 90s and the transformation from, you know, the the real 80s music and hairband stuff and to the the uh, REMs of the world and the radio heads and, the, and, you know, that's such a transition. When you actually you know, heard that at that age where you're, you're starting to play and getting in, into these, you know, what type of mind expansion did that do for your like music? Well, well, growing up, you know, again, kind of when we were in the mountains, the, our, the top 40 station did play pop music, but I mean, it was the kind of music you could probably hear it if you went to the dentist today, you know, I mean, it was a lot of adult contemporary. I mean, it's kind of, you know, the Eagles and, and, 
you know, Don Henley solo and uh, Genesis and, and, you know, those kinds of bands. And, th- and that was great. I mean, there were a bunch of good tunes to, to hear. Uh, but once we got to a place where, I mean, where we had MTV, to be honest with you, um, we just kept it on. It was Channel 54 and we lived in an apartment um, on campus. My mom was getting her teaching certificate. So they were Kyle and, and me and our Nintendo and my mom and, and, and MTV. And so we would, you know, basically just kind of keep tuned in. And there was, you know, like a t- game show called Remote Control. And, oh, yeah. You know, we, so we heard all the kind of, we started hearing new music, but I think there was just an overall kind of cultural shift in our, the way that we, um, like you said, we didn't know what was out there until we until we heard it, mm. and uh, to get exposed to those, you know, college rock, indie rock, um, you know, and not just stuck with kind of the southern influences of our where we grew up mm. was refreshing. Um, but that said, you know, the place we grew up is a really um, it's an important place in like the history of bluegrass, the Osborne Brothers are from Hyden, where, we, where we're from, and, and they throw a festival there every year. They've got a bluegrass music instructor, like a school that you can go to now where they, they'll teach you how to play bluegrass. But, you know, I wish that in the moment when we were growing up that I would have been more open to that mm-hmm. um, than, you know, I didn't play bluegrass when it was happening across the street on the neighbor's porch every Sunday. You know, I mm-hmm. liked it. I mean, I heard it, but I didn't really appreciate it. And it wasn't until I got older and left home that, you know, my appreciation for, for bluegrass and, and country music uh, started developing. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, when we, when we first got the full access to, to you know, a larger palette, so to speak, of, of music, um, it was real inspiring, you know. And it affected the way, you know, not just the kind of music we like, but the way we dressed and the way we talked. And, you know, it kind of music back then and i suppose it still is but you know back then it was it was a a major major part of pop culture you know we didn't have the internet we didn't have a lot of fragmented ways to get information or entertainment everybody had a tv and you had a certain set of channels you know and everybody had a radio and you had a few stations so you know it was an interesting thing but then we went back um to Hyden after a couple of years in richmond mm-hmm. and we go through grade school and now we're hitting high school and, and, you know, Kyle is playing the piano, a buddy of ours had a guitar and, um, another guy we knew played drums and we're like, what do we, you know, we need a bass player. And, um, I was like, well, Hey, I'll play bass. And I think a lot of bass players come to it by default. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody else wants to do it or, you know, Hey, we had, we had a band except for the bass player. So, I grabbed a bass and then Kyle and I and our friends started, you know, kind of playing bands. And, you know, at that point, you know, we weren't athletic. I mean, we were skinny kids, but we weren't, you know, we didn't play basketball or football or, you know, anything like that. So we just started trying to learn music. And, um, you know, we were getting into the probably high school years. um, And we went to this, um, furniture store this is kind of a this is a funny story but (laughs) we we went to a furniture store called hazard furniture it's in hazard kentucky and it was run by a guy named don don davis and they had a piano on the floor and so 
you know, we're there looking for couches or whatever. And, and, and Kyle goes over and he starts playing the piano and, you know, he's killing it. He's very honky tonk. You know, he had his honky tonk licks down at that time, probably 15, 14 or 15. And, uh, the owner of the store came over and he's like, Hey man, you know, you sound great. Um, I have a band. Would you like to play with us sometime? And, you know, these guys were grown men and, uh, Kyle's like, yeah, sure, let's do it, you know. So th then he starts getting his first like bar gig, so to speak. Well, their bass player for the band, it was a cover band. It played like a lot of southern rock, a lot of just, uh, you know, a lot of tunes that you still play in a bar band today. Mm -hmm. You know, like All on the Watchtower and Keep on Rocking in the Free World and Brown Eyed Girl and you know all that stuff. So Kyle uh, started playing with this band occasionally at these bars in Hazard, and the bass player for that band was a little difficult and sometimes he'd show up and sometimes he wouldn't. And when, and you know, some, so basically whenever he wasn't able to make the gig, they would get me and to go up there and play the bass. And they had a book of charts and, uh, I mean, I sucked. I mean, I'd get up there. <laughs> Kyle would be killing it. I mean, he would be, you know, they throw him solos and, you know, he'd just rock it and everybody's clapping. And then I'm just trying to hang on, you know, trying to keep trying to hit the changes and I always would screw him up. In fact, uh, one of the songs that I could never get right was Whipping Post, which he played <laughs> the, the timing, other night. man. <laughs> yeah. I just remember the guy, the head band leader, he would, whenever I'd screw up, which was often, I mean, first of all, I didn't have an amp that was too big. So it wasn't loud enough that everybody could hear everything, you know, hear the horrible mistakes. But he would just look over at me and he'd smile and he'd kind of be like, Hey, it's okay, but like I could tell he was like gritting his teeth. <laughs> God bless it. Stop missing the changes. Well, how old were you at this point? 15. Yeah. I mean, oh, uh, yeah. What's he going to do? <laughs> yeah, you're so, saving the day. <laughs> yeah, right. And and this was back when you could still smoke in bars. We'd play at the, there was a place uh, in Hazard, Hyden, Leslie County, where we we're from was dry. So there was no, there were no venues to play. So we would go to Hazard and we'd, we'd play at the bars over there and uh, we'd play, you know, till one o'clock and uh, one o'clock on a Friday night and then 12 o'clock on a Saturday night. They closed at midnight because Sunday you couldn't serve alcohol and so on. So <laughs> there would, everybody there just smoke. It was just a cloud, but, you know, and you'd go home smelling, your ears were ringing and your t uh, hair smelled like cigarette tar and wheezing from you know, secondhand smoke <laughs> right you'd lay down on a pillow you'd wake up the next morning and your pillow would smell like smoke it was just uh but but it was fun and it kind of gave us that that taste of you know playing music for people you know and, and instead of just ourselves mm -hmm. so that kind of kicked off the bar band um and you know trying to play music as a like you said as a making it a more significant part of our lives than just hobby you know and i mean it's still a hobby but you know we bought started buying nice gear and started trying to look for new bands and started writing songs and so on so once you inherited the uh, position of bass by default was that where you stayed did you ever venture off into any other instruments or have you been a bass player since dude not not until recently and, and it's you know like when i grew up in school and i think you all probably relate or can remember this there was this this kind of unspoken rule that you were either good at math or you were good at writing mm -hmm. or like you could you were either a math person or a words person like that's I, I always was like if in other words 
we were kind of programmed to believe that, hey, if it didn't, if math doesn't come easy for you, then you're probably a words person. And if words don't come easy, you know, and, mm. but the, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that there was another, you know, kind of, and which was silly because you can be good at both, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think with the music thing, I first started it, and I think a lot of pro- people probably do this, almost as a way to, to seek an identity. Mm. So, you know, the, I, yeah, I, there was a love of music, but, you know, I wanted to be the bass player because I needed an identity. And I had a twin brother. And when you have that situation, you share an identity. So mm. Kyle played keys. And I was like, well, I'm not going to play keys. I'm going to be different. And I wish I would have not thought so so shallow. You know, I, I wish I wouldn't have been so shallow in my thinking. It's just like, well, you know, I can't do math. I'm going to do English. I, I should have just been like, I'll play everything, mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I set this kind of artificial limit on my development as a musician. Now, the flip side of that is I have stuck with bass um, through the past. I got my first bass when I was 13. So, goodness, 29 years. So you know, 29 years of primarily playing bass, I should be a monster. <laughs> you know, I should be a really great player, and I'm not. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I, I'm, I'm, va- I'm vouching for you. I'm going to take that, uh, take that uh, I got on it. my shoulder and say, ah, thank you, pre-proficient <laughs> man. I would say he's got to be a, a, a really good bass player now because he was a very, very good bass player when you were years ago. symphony in college. <laughs> yes. Well, so. you know, everybody wants to get to be better than they are, you yes. know, and, and, and I, and I've certainly spent enough time playing video games and doing wasting time in other ways that, you know, if I'd have put it on the base, I would have, I'm hearing yeah. the bass line in my head and I don't know what the name of the song. Oh, it's tied to the tracks maybe or something. I can't. Uh, no. That's probably terrible. Way. Yeah, well, yeah. I was like, what are you doing, man? I don't know what song you're talking about. <laughs> you don't recognize it. <laughs> no. <laughs> I thought well, you were going to go. Well, that would do. The one I'm thinking of. Let me find it here. He I want to find it. Bum, 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 bum. I want to find it. Let's see here. All right. Uh, we got him on a mission now, Steve. I was about to say, that's. I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> um, when did you stop playing percussion in, in school band? Uh, you know what, man, I went, uh, I played percussion for like a couple of years and, and when we're talking about, uh, you know, it was basically just learning to count rhythms mm, and, okay. you know, we're just, you know, one, right hand, left hand, very, uh, rudimentary stuff. And I, and I, and so in four or rather in fifth and sixth grade, uh, we played, I played percussion, Kyle played trumpet. And then once we hit, um, later on in, in, uh, middle school like seventh eighth grade kyle played trumpet still and then i played switched over to alto saxophone and started playing sax and you know it was it was a great exposure to to music in a school setting that probably wouldn't have otherwise been there but it wasn't something i was very passionate about i mean we're talking you know this was like marching band type stuff and and you know it just wasn't wasn't my thing and once we hit like we're freshmen in high school uh that's when we kind of dropped away from the band and uh and started playing you know kyle started playing piano more and i started playing uh the bass but um but we had a teacher that 
basically she she was a, a fresh out of music school and she was a very fired up you know idealist a very great uh, you know really loved music and she offered a couple of music theory classes for our high school in our high school and music theory was something that you know you don't find it in a lot of curriculums around the country i mean as far as just an elective course that you can take in high school absolutely and, not yeah. so Kyle and i <clears throat> picked it up and Kyle, um, she said, well, you can, you know, you can take my music theory class if you want, but you have to sing in the chorus. And cause she needed members for, for her chorus or choir. And so Kyle and I did that. And Kyle was actually the accompani accompanist. I don't know if I'm saying that wrong, but he, uh, would learn how to play all the parts on piano. So the, the chorus could sing along. <laughs> and then I sang, um, you know, I sang bass and. You even sang bass? Okay. Yeah, Whoa. yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking earlier. You know, it sounds like you got like a DJ voice when you're talking about radio and what you heard on the radio. I was wondering if you were right. a DJ. Well, you know, it's funny, dude. We used to have those old. Uh, you all remember those old tape players that had like built and they had microphones. Oh you yeah. Could, you know, and so we'd like record our own setups for songs. Like we'd record a song off of the radio, and then we would like record a few seconds, like a bumper, like a lead in. <laughs> for it did just you to really? that, you know, <laughs> just to pretend like we were DJs um, that's awesome we I think kids. I know the song that oh, what the bass is line is, I think it was Let Me Breathe maybe Bing, boom, bam. What about that right there? The harmonics. Oh, I love it. Six days away, two miles from home. I have no thoughts on where to... That's it. That's the... That's the, what I, when he was talking about playing bass, that's the bass line that first voodoo bass line I heard in my head. Dude, that, that band, um, I mean... It was so funny. We played that song when we were over at Neil's a uh, month ago or whatever it was. <laughs> I mean, I've lost track of time. Everybody has with this. Uh, yeah, no kidding. I don't even quarantine. remember when that was. Probably it was, maybe it was three months ago. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, the little harmonics, the bing, bong, bong, you know, it's, 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 it, it's funny what's le like what, what lives in your muscle memory, you know, it's like mm. I couldn't really remember the tune, but it's just like you, when you stop thinking about it, mm. that was a, uh, then your fingers will go to the right place if you if you clear your mind. That's mind a, don't. Uh, <laughs> well, the the funny part about it too, though, is especially with the voodoo stuff, it was ever changing. I mean, there's so much movement inside those few chords a lot of times, and uh, we still, you know, probably the first time through running through something, we're like, uh, okay, okay, and then by the hit time, you hit that next time through. We were just so. What voodoo song were you talking about? The baseline. I thought you were gonna say. Tied to the tracks. Yeah, tied to the tracks, which is... Let me hear that one. What you have, Kyle and Steve locked in. Actually, we're all pretty locked in on that, aren't we? Yeah, man. That was why we called that too, Tied to the Tracks, because everything was really tied. Yeah, I mean, because, dude, that's... And when you, when you listen to that, and I tell you, it's two chords. Yeah. It's, it's E and A. Is that right? That's yeah. it. And right there's ENA, but all that stuff's going on to get all that yeah. movement. And the, the thing about cool. one of the cool things about playing with Voodoo Symphony was our drummer, <laughs> um, V Greeno, 
Unbelievable. Um, is a really fantastic player. And he's very melodic for a drummer and he has a killer voice. Mm. And he and Neil would harmonize and sing together all the time. And um, I think that V's playing style on drums really fostered a lot of those bass parts. I mean, they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they came from really what a lot of what he was doing. And, um, you know, I've played with a lot of drummers uh, over the years and a lot of and, and different drummers have different styles. And it's sometimes it feels great to just sit down with a guy with a kick and a snare and, mm-hmm. you know, just play it in the pocket and, you know, hit the one and all that. But with V, uh, he could do that, but he also had like a really melodic sense um, of of the of approach to the instrument. And we all shared at the time a lot of the same musical influences. Mm-hmm. We were all big into Dave Matthews. This is back in the nineties, and uh, you know we liked a lot. We had the same core. Like you know we grew up listening to Michael Jackson, and we you know had a lot of the same sensibilities in terms of the music we like. Although V, as I recall, he liked a lot of like heavier music mm-hmm. too which I never really had a um, knowledge of, you know, but he was, a, he was into a lot of prog rock. I'm sure he still is, but, uh, but he also was into hip hop. So all that kind of stuff influenced his drumming style, which would influence the rest of our parts. Um, what, what is versa. V's name? I've only heard Vincent. him as V. Vincent yeah, Greeno. Vincent, yeah. Vincent Greeno. G-R-I, Greeno. Greeno. But it's And he's still a pretty, uh, he's still a pretty active musician, isn't he? He posted something the other day on Facebook. Did you see this cover of uh, 25 or 6 to 4? Mm-mm. Anyway, he's in a cover band and he's doing, he's just singing background now, singing backups, but he's in some cover band uh, that did this Chicago tune. I mean, with they had the horn section, they had everybody. I mean, it was really an elaborate setup and they nailed that tune. Really? I mean, it was, it was like, you know, super, super good. Um, but but yeah, V is, you know, he's, he's, he's a very active musician still. And, and, uh, you know, as much as you can be nowadays, of course, there's not a lot of places to play. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, until the, you know, Corona goes away, you know. Yeah. One man, once this thing goes away, I think it's going to be open season for music though. I think it's going to yeah. be insanity. People are ready. Right. People, people are ready. ready. Right. Yeah. There's so much pin up demand. I mean, there's so, so many people just want to go see a, a, go see a band and go be in that, be in a small bar or be in a, you know, big festival, whatever, just to hear some live music. I mean, it's, you know, people look at music, I think sometimes as an option in life, you know, like it's, it's optional. You don't need it to, to survive, you know, but uh, now that we're, we've been deprived of live music and the ability to go out and play, if, if you're in a, in a, in a band, um, you, you realize how, how much you miss it, how, how, how important it is. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, hopefully soon, you know, Steve, let me ask you to dig in your memories and go back to the voodoo symphony days. And what, what's your favorite voodoo memory? Oh goodness, man. I mean, we had a lot of good memories. I, I, I can remember we would go to, uh, I remember recording that album. We recorded mm. this, a uh, quickie. This, it was a five song EP, maybe six. I think it was six, but one of them was the little interlude. Little inter- interlude yeah. kind of thing. Um, but, you know, just going to the recording studio every night and getting that stuff laid down and we would go out and play bar gigs and we actually had a great deal at one of the bars in town where we would make for college kids, you know, a lot of money mm-hmm. per night. You know, we'd make like 
a hundred bucks a piece or 110 bucks a piece or something like that, which, you know, to us was, you know, dude, that's a, a good night now. <laughs> yeah. yeah no kidding. It's still good money. And, 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 uh, but that project, we saved up $5,000 in gig money and played anywhere from frat houses to bars to, uh, on campus events, you know, stuff like that. And then, and then we went in there and we recorded these songs and we just kind of like realized this vision. And I think as a young musician, um, you know, 20, 21, well, 22 years old, it was something, it, it, you know, it felt good to accomplish that. And we mm-hmm. did the design and we did the, we did the duplication and, 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 and you still know, a really good record. And it was such a, it was just a collective effort, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that was a great memory. I mean, we played, we would play bar gigs where, you know, the crowd, we would be in a, you know, bar with, I don't know, 500 people. It was like a college campus, kind of a, you know, like a herd of. Pre-corona. Lying out the door. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just and, and they would, and they, you know, we played so frequently that people got to know our original songs. And so we'd get to a song where they would be singing it to us and we could drop out and Neil could drop out and they'd sing the words back to you. And I mean, you know, it wasn't like we were on the Beatles or anything. I mean, it it wasn't like we were, but boy, it was something else. I mean, to Mm -hmm. hear, it's one thing when you play a cover and you nail the cover and you're playing the Joker or something, you know, and everybody, I'm a Joker, I'm sick, you know, and everybody sings along Mm because everybody knows that tune. And that's fun. It's super fun to play uh, and have the crowd sing along. But when you play your own stuff and they sing along, it was really awesome. Oh, yeah. And it just, uh, yeah. Hadn't happened since for me, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, you guys were a highly desired band in Lexington in those days. Yeah, we were. Those were the the, those were the salad days, man. We Mm -hmm. we had a, you know, we had a good run, and you know, we played all the time, and we never practiced. I mean, Mm -hmm. playing out was practice. I mean, we played out once a week, and so I remember we had a a, we played a bar called Tukey's Tavern, which I think is now closed or it's about to close. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think it's not open right now, but. We would play there every Thursday night, which was their biggest night. And then we would play once a week, once a month. We'd play Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night. It was $750 a night guarantee. We would pay the sound man $150. Oh, Larry. Larry Gardner, rest, <laughs> rest his soul. Rest his and, soul. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, it didn't do much for my, I mean, I, my grades suffered. I mean, I, <laughs> we, were, we were just staying up late and playing, you know, and just being... You know, we we're college kids. kids, man. Yeah, right. But uh, well, from what Neil told me, his degree suffered. <laughs> like left him. <laughs> I didn't even sniff that degree, man. I don't know well, if I even I messed mean, with any paper down there at all. I, don't, I say this is like a, a real. It's not like we were going to the mall and people swarming us for autographs. I mean, we weren't. You know, but there was a kind of importance that that band had to all of us that made it feel like it was, you know, a big deal. And so like, you know, there were daydreams about stuff and there, and, and, you know, there was, you know, our, our, our moods, you know, we put a lot of work into booking gigs and, 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 you know, getting places and getting the word out and all. I mean, you know, there was a, it was an investment by all of us, the time in that band. So it was a lot more fun than school. And so there were many days where, I was just like, screw it. I'm not going to class or, you know, 
I've got better things to do, you know. Well, I'm sure you all learned a lot through all that, so <laughs> well, you, <laughs> you know were what? learning. You were learning. <laughs> you do learn. But, you know, now that uh, I look back at those days and realize how, I mean, we were so young. And, yeah. and you don't know what you, what you're. Don't you appreciate know, it. But it's not or? even appreciate it. You just really don't know what you're doing at that point as far yeah. as, you know, man, it, it probably took me till 40 to plan anything. To like, all right, let's think about this and think about this. And all right, we got to do this. Um, so, you know, building, when I think back about that band and think about the possibilities, I mean, especially now, you know, you have social media and all those things. I mean, there's just things that you talk about booking the gigs and stuff like that, man. I think I was nice. I don't have any, I didn't do any of that. I, re- I realize now. Who was the band manager? Had to be Steve. Steve. Yeah, that used me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. well, you're just taking care of the business. I, you know, I. I there were probably points then that Steve probably wanted to kick your ass. I guarantee it. But, <laughs> well, you know, I, because. You know what, though? Like, no, I mean, I don't think there was that. I think, I think what was <laughs> the thing that, that I did, my contribution to that band was, you know, getting the gigs and making sure that the place had enough power drops when we went there and making sure that. You know, the sound guy knew the, the address and, and, and you know, making sure the count. We, we, you know, had a book, had a date book, and it, and it had a calendar in it. And every week we were playing at this party or that bar. or And we'd play, you know, we wouldn't just play the one bar I mentioned. I mean, we'd play every damn bar in town. Anybody that let us play. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd play anywhere in town and uh, and out of town if we could. But, but the thing, my contribution to that band wasn't as much creative. So, Neil... And Kyle and Chris uh, and and B, you know, they're writing a lot of music and they're doing their contribution is is the the product. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're they're ma- they're writing songs and they're um, doing they're taking care of that. So I wasn't that guy. I wasn't the hey, here's my new song. Let's run through it. I didn't write songs, um, and partly because you know the bass. As I was a strictly bass player back then, it was just, it's not an easy instrument to write on, you know? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the tunes I would come up with were just, you know, they sounded like bass lines, you know? <laughs> I mean, they, they weren't that interesting. So, dude, I just, so, I, I, I'm, well, I think about it in the context of myself now, because, you know, anytime that there's a gig booked, if it's not, you know, from somebody just with a random call or something, it's it's having to seek it out and do those things and make sure like all the stuff you're that you're. I just I, I'm blown away by how little I did. <laughs> no, I, I, I know what Steve's saying though, and I, I can and I can see that. Uh, but I get so frustrated. I mean, on my end now, going all right, we got this. Let's promote it. Let's do these things, and then. But you're still you're still not a detail guy. I mean, you're still Hell like a no. big you're a big picture guy. Yeah. It runs in your genes. That's a Johnstone thing, I think, man. I, I think it's, uh, like you guys are big picture people. They're like here, here's this big idea. Well, how are we gonna get there? I well, don't know. Well, <laughs> Let's yeah, just do it. You're right. You're right. Because even thinking about right now, uh, music right now, I've got a big picture. It's like yeah, I've got all these things, but like getting down to the detail of finishing and and, and actually sitting in front of a microphone recording doing the. Uh, what I always appreciated about Neil and what one of, one of the many things is that Neil would was fearless and is fearless when he when it comes to like here's a new song I've got I'm going to come and I'm going to sing it to you and I'm going to sing the lyrics and maybe they're not the real lyrics yet but I mean I'm going to just and there was a kind of confidence and a uh, a 
joy in in writing and sharing, whereas somebody like me is very shy about putting myself out there like that. And it's something that kind of uh, insecurity has really only been remedied with age. I mean, and even now, it's not like I'm gonna, you know, jump on you know Instagram live and sing a song I wrote. You know, I mean, I would never do that. And uh, but. But Neil, it was so effortless and is, you know, his confidence and because he got it. I mean, he's got a great voice, you know, and he's he knows how to play the guitar. And it's just like, you know, I was always, uh, you know, admired that there was a force in the band that could come and present us with new things and, and new music and, uh, you know, and even cover ideas like, you know, stuff that he was, you know, covers that he was particularly fond of or whatever, you know, that we wouldn't have thought of playing otherwise, you know, that was, uh, but that was a super, I mean, each one of us in the band had, uh, had our, our, you know, kind of specialty, if you will. Yeah. And, and. Well, I still love that EP. I mean, it was a very, uh, very talented group. You know, you guys had a, had a lot going yeah, on there. It, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, to hear us play like that. And like Neil said, I mean, I, we were 20. I was 20, 21. Neil was probably, what, 18? Yeah, 19, you know, 18, 19. When we did that. Um, so, you know, and the world was different. I mean, I when you listen to 90s music, I think that like 9-11 was just kind of like everything changed, right? <laughs> and like this whole like everything. We, we lived, the Generation X lived in this kind of time where you know, we had a little cold war in the eighties and when the, but when the 90s came we've got peace and prosperity and a lot of cool bands and you know there's a lot of different music that's out in the world whether it be mm-hmm. you know the beginnings of hip-hop like what modern hip-hop that we know um grunge shit. right grunge indie rock rock i mean all of that was kind of coexisting mm-hmm. at the same time in the 90s and in the 80s to the point too so as you're opening up other genres i'd like to switch gears before we run out of time i'm I, oh yeah yeah you know I, I see you on instagram when i get on there and it looks like you like to collect vinyl <laughs> yes i do <laughs> yeah when did that start uh, speaking of genres <laughs> you talk about genres well, you know, I mean, I th- you know, we always had records and my affinity for vinyl, like the way it is now, which if, again, if you look at my Instagram, uh, S Morgan 502, uh, you'll see that there's like hundreds of records. And, you know, that I, I think that my path to vinyl was similar to a lot of people's path to vinyl, which is that, you know, people want something that's tangible and, 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 you know, MP3s are cool. Um, CDs were, you know, cool. But the thing about vinyl is, is that it kind of demands something of the listener. And, you know, I can't skip tracks on vinyl. I can't put one song on repeat. I, I can't, um, you know, I'm, if I put on an, a record, then I've got to let it play through the first side and then I've got to get up and flip it and then play it through the second side. And, uh, and you start, you know, you hear music uh, as a more in a more uh, holistic way. You know, you hear an album as it's supposed mm-hmm. to be heard. Um, so that was kind of the appeal. But I started collecting, I don't know, probably right around ten years ago. You know, and really kind of started maybe, maybe yeah, eight or nine years ago, and started really kind of going out and and there's been a proliferation of record stores here in Louisville. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's plenty of places to find vinyl, and of course the sales for vinyl right now I think are. Dude, I, all right, I got a question. All right, uh, 
pertaining to vinyl and, and records in general? Because um, I'm sure you got some, you know, of course, vinyls that are older and then vinyls yeah. that are newer. Do you find a distinct difference in listening to a record from, say, you know, mid-70s that from song one to the last song on the album on side B, there's a purpose to the entire record as compared to now, maybe it's more individual because of, I don't know why, but... A hundred percent, dude. And, really? You know, you, you, when you listen to the, a record that was crafted in the time of, hey, we've got 20 minutes per side, so let's make a 40-minute record or a 45-minute record and make it a piece of music. Or, you know, so you'll get other albums, of course, you know, there's you know, songs in the key of life. I mean, that's mm -hmm. like a double album. And, you know, there's it's not always limited to that length of time, but... Uh, I do find that there's a lot more craftsmanship and, uh, or at least it feels that way in a lot of these older albums where they were meant to be listened to as a complete piece of music. Mm -hmm. um, whereas nowadays, you know, you get people that write songs that are like two and a half minutes long or two minutes long, just because they're easier to stream multiple times. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you're scraping for fractions of a cent on a stream, um, you know, so, so it's a strategic way. I think it's a shame that, the technology that we live in has come to dictate the kind of music we hear. Hmm. But um, if you go to the you know, top 100 list on Spotify, it was really surprising to me what how high a percentage of those songs are less than three minutes. Really? Yeah. 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 And I mean, I mean, it's and you know, and I'm a, in fairness, if you go back to like the 50s and the 60s, a lot of those tunes mm -hmm. were two and a half minutes too. You know, wake up, little Susie. I mean, it's probably every two, day it's you know, getting yeah. closer. Yeah, all those songs yeah. are so, short, and that was also done, you know, to appease the radio format, you know, so that they could, hmm. yeah. you know, the three minute sweet spot, you know, to to get higher radio play, uh, you know. So, uh, but but yeah, uh, you know, now people will come out with an album that'll have twenty seven tracks on it, you know, mm -hmm. and well, I mean, and just this summer, I mean, we we sat down and did a, I wouldn't necessarily call it an EP because it wasn't an EP, but there were four songs and none of them complemented each other. They were completely different sounding. Well, that's more how that developed, though. I mean, we just kind of came in here and just Let's said, hey, what, what do you want to record? Yeah. You were just spitting out songs. Yeah, that's true. But but I, I do think it's like we're so ADHD with everything these days that the concept of, of making a record to where this is the record, this is the the painting from the beginning to the end, and at the end you get this picture – I don't know if that that stands true anymore. Other than yeah. well, like like Steve said, you've got these bits and pieces of songs that you know. I'm just these are my coolest songs or whatever. Yeah, well, probably yeah. probably and more I mean, the ones they think they can market as singles. Yeah, right. And and but uh, you know these days there's still artists that record. I suppose what you term like theme albums, you know and. Mm -hmm. Like when you talk about the dark side of the moon yeah. or what's going on or, um, you know, Sergeant Pepper, I mean, uh, you know, th those, those albums were, you know, carefully produced and, and, and put together as a really, you know, really ambitious pieces of music. Um, and, and again, today, you know, I don't know that you hear that as much, but again, there's still some great cool albums that are coming out today and some artists that are, you know, hell, my wife bought the new uh, Taylor Swift record. Oh yeah, folklore and folklore. Yeah, okay. it's a great album. Mm -hmm. It was. It was. She worked with um, 
the guy from the national on a lot of the tunes. Oh, okay. But the thing that I've noticed about it is it just feels like a cohesive piece of music. I mean, all the songs fit together and it's not like the, you know, Taylor Swift pop pop, you know, it's, it's a little more singer songwriter, mm -hmm. you know, you've got a band that I'm really digging right now. Uh, the avalanches, um, they just came out with their third album in 20 years. Um, and, uh, they have a very, um, their album feels crafted, you know, it, it feels like they put work into it and mm -hmm. that they put intention and thought into it. And Radiohead, huge Radiohead fan, all their stuff always feels very um, crafted. Mm -hmm. So, um, How many records do you own? I've got 850 or so. <laughs> 850. Whoa. Do you have a, you're almost at the point where you need structural reinforcement from your basement to make sure you don't damage any well, of your you floors. Know, dude, it's actually, it's upstairs and I, wor I worry the floor is going to fall through. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> That's yeah. a lot of weight. What, 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 do you, uh, what, what do you play those on? I've got a, a, a turntable made by a company called Project and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, if you like think about the old school turntables, like you've got the uh, different speed settings and you've got like the real intricate arms and you know, that you've got kind of lights on them that will show you like how fast the record's being all that. This is the opposite of that. This is very stripped down, <laughs> um, stripped down, basically just a plinth, uh, you know, piece of wood and then, uh, and a platter uh, and a carbon fiber arm. And it's very, um, I thought you were going to have some the, type the of idea is to strip out all the excess noise possible noise sources, but it's a super good turntable. Yeah, he was, good, he was thinking you're going to have like a laser needle yeah. pointed thing that floats in the air. And no, uh, I thought he would have had uh, some some really uh, desired vintage intricate. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you, dude, I, I'm it, my mind. I mean, I've got a few. I if, if I could, if I could you know, throw together a system for a couple thousand dollars. I've got a couple, you know, turntables I'd love to have. I'd love to have a Technics SL 1200. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the tank, you know, direct drive turntable where you can like, that's where all the DJs use, you know, you could go, you know, scratch it and so on yeah. without burning out the engine, but burning out the motor. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of a Holy Grail type turntable. Um, but, you know, the old Marantz, amps and stuff look awesome the macintosh i mean yeah I, i'm i have a taste for vintage stuff too but my current setup is is not what's your oldest uh oldest record you have man that's a great question the oldest record i have i think i mean i've got some elvis stuff from the 50s but like i think that there's a muddy waters record in there that's from the 40s you know i don't and then i've got some old um lacquer records from like the 20s and 30s but those are 78s they don't yeah. play they don't play on my system they're just i've got them they were my dads actually <laughs> but uh but yeah i've got you know the thing about i mean it's a frivolous expense it's, you know it's a silly way to spend money but i'll tell you what some of these records have gained value it's funny all this vinyl that was produced in the 90s which you know was kind of when vinyl was getting phased out if you can get a hold of a you know, '90s record from a popular band, Fish, or, or uh, I mean, hell, uh, Everclear. I mean, you know, it doesn't even you know anything that was produced in that era. They didn't make a lot of them. So now that the vinyl resurgence is back, you've got a bunch of folks like me and you all who are like, I used to love that band in high school. Now I've got this record player that I just bought. I'd love to get the record for it. So, you know, it's kind of interesting to see how the value of vinyl has. Um, has has gone up sometimes but uh 
but yeah, it's, it's fun. I mean, it, it, they're, to me, they're like books, you know, you, you kind of get a feel for a record and not just what the songs that are on it, but like what this record, what was the historical context that this record was released in. And that's a good example for what's going on by Marvin Gaye. It was just, you know, it came out right in the 1971 Vietnam wars happening. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of racial strife, civil rights. And, uh, and that record is a, really a reflection of the culture at that time. Those lyrics fit today. Is that one got Mother Mother on it? Yep. <sighs> Unbelievable. Do you go out? Do you have places you go? I mean, is it like a hobby to go out treasure hunting? Do you hit flea markets and things like well, that? Or how do you get your records? You know, man, I, I used to. And I like I used to go and you could find stuff at a flea market or like there's a, a Goodwill. Peddler's you know? Mall, man. Peddler's Mall have records yeah, like Yeah, Peddler's crazy. Mall. I've bought stuff. I've bought, gotten some cool records at Peddler's Mall, but it's been a long time. Mm. Um Currently, I keep, I just make it easy on myself and just go to a normal record store because Louisville's got quite a few now. And, you know, each one of them kind of does one thing well or two things well. So it depends on you. If I want a jazz record, I'll go to this store. And if I want uh, indie, you know, the latest indie rock, I'll go to this store. And if I want, you know, classic rock, that you know. So, you know, there's a lot of, we used to have a store, Ear Ecstasy in Louisville, which was a mm-hmm. giant, awesome top record store in the country mm-hmm. and it was just a big old store and i know you know that store went out of business and missed the vinyl revival which is a sad it would have saved yeah it would have saved that store uh, yeah i know right mm-hmm. um because it was you know but we don't have a superstore, so to speak vinyl store anymore in louisville so you just kind of hit this shop or that shop and of course the internet <laughs> you know the internet oh, uh, yeah. i don't like to shop on the internet but there's some stuff that is rare where you can only find it on eBay or you can only find it on, you know, certain kind of specialty sites. I definitely know who has vinyl on my route. <laughs> I oh, I bet, dude, with yep. all those media mailers. Yep, yep. absolutely. Yep. I know who has them. There's about, uh, there's a handful of people that order vinyl pretty consistently. So I got I just, two uh, questions that came to mind here. One, I was thinking as we were talking about how you make your purchases, what what comes to mind as the best bargain uh, that you've... That's a great question. For and this goes back to what Neil was asking earlier about, like what a what a record from the '70s sounds like versus, say, a record from now. This is more not just songs, but fidelity. So, like a record that was pressed in the '70s or the '80s, you know, pure analog path. Right, everything's you know analog. So you can get like Steely Dan. Asia mm. is a is a one that comes to mind. I bought it. Bought a copy of Asia for three bucks. You can find it everywhere. Yeah. It won the best produced album in the of the year. The year it came out, which I don't know, seventy seven. I can't recall exactly, but but um, anyway, that is an album. You spend three bucks on that album, put it on your turntable, and it, it'll blow your mind. Like just the production level. I mean, the way does it just sound album. different than other records on vinyl, dude? It sounds like the 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 thing that I've been able to discern, and I'm not you know, Mr. Audiophile, I've got a decent system, but I don't have, you know, you can spend a million dollars on a system if you want. But like the thing I've noticed about a good analog pressing versus a good digital pressing that they put on vinyl is that the analog stuff always to me has more definition around the instruments. So I can hear the sound stage. I can hear the saxophone guy, the saxophone player is over on the left and the percussion player is over on the right and the drummer's in the middle and you hear a very distinct kind of separation between those instruments. 
uh, I'll tell you another awesome sounding record is Off the Wall. Michael Jackson Off the Wall sounds fantastic. And you can find those records pretty, you know, they're not rare. But um, one of the best sounding albums that I have um, as far as just the bargain bin is Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. And the Dire Straits Brothers in Arms album sounds fantastic. And it came out in 1986. But it was the first like digitally recorded album. So it was very primitive digital in 1986, but it was digitally recorded and then put on a vinyl. But it but it also won the album uh, Grammy for best production. So you know, it's, hmm. you know, I don't know that it's necessarily digital versus analog, but you can tell when a skillful engineer or producer has, has put together a record. I mean, because they sound, they just sound better, you know. Is there anything on the album covers that lets you know, like whether it's digitally recorded or analog or what the path was? Well, Is there anything? You know, that, that particular record on the back has a stamp that says like, you know, proudly recorded in digital. And, you know, this was before the worm turned on digital. This is when everybody thought digital was, you know, the best thing, you know. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, it, it was, but a lot of records, like let's say if you were going to go out and buy a copy, for instance, I bought a copy of The Chronic, right? Dr. Yeah. Dre's Chronic. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's a remaster. And it was, it just doesn't sound great. It sounds very flat. All the, inst- all the, the beat, everything sounds very flat. Like it's all a layer of sound instead of like individual drum beats or whatever. And I think it was just kind of like somebody took a CD and recorded it onto vinyl. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, hmm. so you, you don't get a lot of the cool like analog characteristics, you know, that you get from pure analog signals. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, not uh, the answer to your question is uh, sadly no. A lot of them will be just, they look like the original packaging and it might be a reissue of a 70s record. Yeah. But it's done from a digital master. So what about in your collection, what's your uh, most prized records? Wow. Um, uh, as far as like value or like what they sell for, um, a record that is, there's a, there's a company called Mobile Fidelity that makes a lot of like uh, audio file level records and they do limited pressings. So, like, you can get a thousand of them. You know, they make a thousand of them. You got to get your whole hands on one. Beck, Sea um, Change by Beck uh, is a record that I've got that, you know, sells for a few hundred bucks. You know, got it for 30 or 40 bucks back when it came out. But now it's, you know, super rare. Um, I've got mm-hmm. a couple mobile fidelity pressings of what's going on that I keep coming back to. I've got a cool German pressing of uh, REM's um, Monster that mm. was kind of my high school soundtrack record. It's a killer um, album. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, it is. And, um, you know, so, and then I just, this the band, the avalanches that I was mentioning earlier, I'm a huge fan of, I just got a record of theirs, their new record, uh, signed. And you, for like, you could pay five bucks extra and get a record that was like signed by the band, which is only two guys. It's like an EDM, not really EDM, but it's kind of like a, uh, you know, electronic music kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that's kind of cool. But yeah. you know, it's you know I've got the Rick and Morty soundtrack, right? You know, I've, I've got all kinds of weird shit. You know, I've got a cool one that I just picked up from. It was a Muhammad Ali record, and it's actually it's Cassius Clay. It was before he changed his name, but he did an album, a comedy album. What? Back really? When he was a fighter, yeah. Cassius Clay 
And it says, I am the greatest. And it's basically Muhammad Ali doing comedy sketches. And it's, you know, like his poetic speaking and, you know, the Louisville lip and, yeah. you know, how he's kind of like got that big personality. Oh, sure awesome. enough, they, they made a record of him. I've never heard yeah. of that. That is amazing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Well, Steve, man, we try to keep these a little bit under an hour, so we're, we're almost there. But, man, it's been great uh, talking to you. I'm glad you could join us tonight. And that's a, that was an interesting conversation about the vinyl collection. Man, I appreciate you guys having me. I didn't know what to expect, but I'm glad that we, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I hope you all had as much fun as I did. I, I, yeah, I, I just love, uh, you know, talking uh, talking to you all. But it was fun to to go back and tell some stories and, and uh and and you know very you know various anecdotes and so on. I hope I didn't ramble too much. Well, let's do this, man. All right, let's. Uh, we we're gonna be together uh, at the end of this month. We talked to Chris yesterday, uh, and I'm sure that we'll talk to V shortly. But he's in. So next, when when everybody comes in, let's get in the studio and do some uh, playing around, record a little bit, and uh, maybe sit down and have a. A talk with the full guys. Yeah, we can all wear our pop filters. Do whatever we need to do. <laughs> <laughs> Count me in, man. That'd be amazing. That'd hey, be let's, a good time. Uh, let's play a voodoo song to go out. What do you guys want to play? I don't care. What do you want to play, Steve? You're the you're the guest. Oh, uh, you know what? Let's. Uh, I kind of want to hear what we played earlier. I kind of want to hear uh, "Let Me Breathe." Let, Let me, breathe. me breathe. Yeah, I, I love that. Let's one. do it. Tied to the tracks. Let me breathe. Two y'all talked about are my favorites. That's it. Pinky thing too, man. I love that. Oh that's yeah, a pinky great thing. That's so a we'll go out with Voodoo Symphony. Let me breathe. Thanks again, Steve. Thank you, brother. Thank you all. Thank you.